take a seat. And we are now going to turn to God's word and look at Psalm 147, and this can be found on page 632 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 147 on page 632. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the numbers of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Linda. Do please keep your Bibles open to page 632. Let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your word and by your spirit, you meet our needs. You speak to each one. We pray, Lord God, that whatever we bring with us this morning, that you, the one who knows the thoughts of our hearts, would speak to show us your glory in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Remembrance Sunday points us back towards the past. And it may be that you come this morning with memories, 
memories perhaps of relatives, people you've known who have served in the armed forces, stories perhaps they told you as you grew up, points you back to the past. And yet at the same time, war doesn't feel like it's very in the past at the moment, does it? It's raging around the world and on our screens. Even as we were just getting used to the atrocities and terrors of war in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, our eyes now shift to the Middle East and all that's happening there. And recently, horrifying news from Sudan as well, and horrifying images too. It's something we can see in HD as well. I don't know if you've ever done that. You've just taken your phone out, gone on social media, and suddenly the algorithm shows you something that takes your breath away, something shocking. If you're here as a pathfinder or engrafted, I remember being your age, and I don't think it was like this then. Of course there were conflicts, of course there were skirmishes, but the weight of war feels oppressive upon us, hard to miss. War doesn't feel like it's in the past. And that's why it's helpful to have that Remembrance Day slogan, lest we forget. Because even though war doesn't feel like it's in the past, there are still things we might forget that those who have served in the past can teach us. That's why Remembrance Day can be helpful to, to learn the things they have to teach us. So I want to share something written by someone who was a survivor of the Battle of the Somme, who knew the horrors of trench warfare, and who saw his children serve in World War II. I'm talking about the writer J.R.R. Tolkien, whose Lord of the Rings is, if nothing else, a story of war and shaped by his experience of war. And in it, one of his best characters, Faramir, who longs for the peace of his city and his people, says this, war must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. That's what we shouldn't forget on Remembrance Day. That's what Tolkien and so many others who served in the wars of the last century learned at such cost. Not to love the things of war for themselves, but that which they defend. So what are the things worth defending? That's why we're in Psalm 147. Psalm 147 shows us the peace that Faramir was longing for, that Tolkien was longing for, that so many have fought to defend. If you look down on it, you can see it's a psalm of praise. Verses 1, verse 7, verse 12, calling the people to praise. A psalm of praise pointing us to the God who brings the peace we strive for. This morning, I have two things for us to see. What that peace is, and then how we get it. So first, what that peace is, my first point for us this morning, it's the 360-degree peace that comes when God restores, secures, and satisfies. In the Bible, we misunderstand peace if we think it's just the opposite of war. If you look at verse 14, we, we see the verse, peace there. He grants peace to your borders. And that is a beautiful Bible word, the word shalom. But we don't get that word if we think it just means the absence of hostility. That's not it. It's much more than that. See, if right this second, every gun was put down, every blade put away, if every argument and fight were to stop, that would be good. 
but it still wouldn't be shalom. It would just be one big ceasefire. But shalom is better than that. It's what we could call 360-degree peace. Not just the absence of hostility, but the presence of wholeness and flourishing. Not something fragile and temporary, like every human ceasefire is, but lasting peace. Peace in all its dimensions, peace in all directions. And that's what we get a glimpse of as we look at Psalm 147 together. It shows us the peace that comes when God restores, secures, and satisfies. Have a look down at verse 2. You'll see there that God brings the exiles of his people back to the city, but this is much more than just a resettlement program. Verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. This is God restoring what looked like it was beyond repair. God getting to work to heal broken hearts, comforting tenderly those who've been traumatized by the experience of war. And verse four, if you look at it, the God who does that is the same one who determines the numbers of the stars, who calls them by name. His power and understanding, verse five, is limitless. (coughs) Just imagine that. The same hands that position the stars in space tending to our wounds, bringing us the healing we crave, and turning his almighty power and understanding towards what? Verse six, have a look. Sustaining the humble and casting down the wicked, bringing the justice we crave. 360 degree peace is when God puts everything back together again. Broken individuals, broken societies, even a broken creation. That's why as we saw this psalm, you probably heard over and over all these lovely references to creation and its beauty, because that's the kind of peace we're talking about when God restores, secures, and satisfies. And we see that security and satisfaction uh, in verse 13. Have a look at it. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. Can you imagine that? Looking out of your city, knowing that you are safe from anything that would come at you to threaten you. Looking within and knowing that you are blessed. Security on the outside, prosperity on the inside. This 360 degree peace comes with the satisfaction of the finest of wheat which means it's not just that you're not smelling gunpowder and shed blood, but you're smelling freshly baked bread. That's the kind of peace the psalm is talking about. This is the peace that is not just the end to war, but the kind that comes when God restores, secures, and satisfies his people. It's the kind of peace our world is crying out for, and it turns out it's the kind that only God can give. So how do we get it? It's my second point for this morning. War won't bring it, but his word will. War won't bring us 360 degree peace, but his word will. Today, as we did a few moments ago, it is right to remember how precious earthly peace is and to remember with gratitude those who bought it with their blood. Such a costly thing, such a precious thing. 
But Psalm 147 has a surprise for us. The peace we fight to defend does not ultimately come through war. Have a look at verse 10. God's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. God doesn't delight in the things of war, although so often we do. War can fascinate us. I wonder if any of you were bloodthirsty children. I was. I thought it was fascinating. You have to pity my parents. I think between the ages of about 8 and 11, every birthday, what do you want to do? I said the same three words. Imperial War Museum. That's where I wanted to go. I wanted to see the guns. I wanted to see the tanks. I wanted to... It seemed heroic. It seemed glorious. War can fascinate, and we can delight in the things of war. And not just children. I'm sorry to say that today you can see in our world, on social media and on the streets, people celebrating bloodshed as if they were talking about sports matches. People exulting in the deaths of those being killed by their armies and their fighters. People rejoicing in the effectiveness and the brutality of military equipment. All over the world today, you will see people delighting in war. But look at verse 10, and what do you see? God does not delight in war. God takes no pleasure in those things. No pleasure in the horses, which at that time, the time of the psalm, would mean terrifying cavalry units on the battlefield. He takes no pleasure in the legs of the warrior. That's the strength to take the fight to your enemies. God does not delight in those things, and neither should we. Why? Because they will not bring us what we crave. My youngest daughter, Maria, is currently going through a very big Humpty Dumpty phase. Do you know that nursery rhyme? And I can't be the only parent who thinks it is ridiculous to ask horses to assist with reconstructive surgery. And yet, as silly as that is, the truth is many people today act as if that were true, as if all the king's horses and all the king's men really can put things together again, really can solve huge problems in our world. And verse 10 is telling us, do not do that. You cannot trust war to restore what's been broken or to secure what's valuable or to satisfy what we're longing for. War cannot do any of those things. But his word will. That's where Psalm 147 takes us. God's life-giving word is something that we notice in this psalm and it's doing two things. It's sustaining creation and it's securing Israel. You see that in this beautiful poetry of the psalm. Have a look at verse 8. God provides clouds in the sky, rain for the earth, grass on the hills. Why? Verse 9, so that whether it's cattle we farm or young ravens in the wild, everyone has enough to eat. God sustains his world. But how does he do it? The psalm gets really specific. He does it by his word. Have a look at verse 15. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. And then if you look at verse 16 to 17, you have this beautiful sketch of God speaking the, the seasons as they turn. We have him scattering frost like ashes. Today we saw the first frost we've noticed so far. I wonder if you did as well. And then verse 18, he sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. 
Again, God's word melting the chill waters of winter so they become the the life-giving flow of the spring. And just to point out, the word breezes in verse 18 is the same word for spirit or breath. What's the point? Here it is, that God's breathed-out word is what ensures order and life in creation. So it makes sense, by the way, that nature, sorry, that science progresses when people observe and understand laws in nature. It makes sense because behind them all, there is a lawgiver, the one who upholds all things by his life-giving word, from snowflakes to stars. He is the one who speaks his word. And the point the psalmist is making is as small as Israel was, as geopolitically insignificant as they surely were, they didn't need to worry because the God who upholds creation by his word is on their case. They are his people, the apple of his eye, and the word that keeps creation going is the word he is speaking to them. Have a look at verse 19. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. This is why Psalm 147 is weaving together God's sustaining care for creation and his sustaining care for the people of Israel. Why? Because by the same word that orders and establishes the cosmos, God speaks to establish and secure his people. That's what the end of the psalm is showing us, that God has spoken his peace-bringing words to Israel and therefore given them what no other nation on earth had, his good law, which if they obeyed it, would bring order and peace to their nation, and in fact draw all the other nations in to worship God with them. 360 degree peace. War can't bring it. Sometimes, as Faramir tells us, war must be, and in fact it can't be avoided. And you see that in the Bible too. Maybe you know King David. He's a great warrior in the Bible story. And he plays an important role in God's plan. And yet he isn't the ultimate king we need. 1 Chronicles 28.3, here's what God says to him. You are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. David the warrior is not how God will build his house and secure his people. Turns out you need a prince of peace for that. And that's why it's David's son, Solomon, whose name means peace, who gets to build the temple. You need the prince of peace to do it. War won't bring 360 degree peace, but his word will. And while Israel had received God's word, they fell short in obeying it, just like we do all the time. But here's the good news that means we can gather this morning. God's word doesn't just come to us in laws we can't keep. Wonderfully, the same word upholding all creation steps into creation in Jesus Christ and chooses to join David's family line so that he can be the true prince of peace, so that he can be great David's greater son. And when you look at Jesus, this is what you see, the most significant figure in human history. He does not achieve his importance by picking up a sword or joining the battle. He never resorts to violence, even though his power is unlimited. 
But instead, verse 11 always puts his hope in God's unfailing love. And what you see is that he does not come to kill God's enemies and shed their blood, but to die for them and pour out his blood for them. To die for God's enemies. In other words, all who have fallen short of his word, people like Israel and people like us. And because of that, Jesus is the word of God who brings the peace war never can. Peace between God and us and peace between you and me. As the crucified one, he paid for it with his blood. As the risen one, he greets his people saying, peace be with you. And as the returning king, we wait for him to come again when he brings 360 degree peace to this world at last. As he surely will, as surely as the rain falls, as surely as the stars shine, as surely as the suns rise every morning and the seasons turn, God's word guarantees all those other things. So it guarantees this peace too. What is the peace we're fighting for? It's 360 degree peace when God restores, secures, and satisfies. How do we get it? War won't bring it, but his word will. On Remembrance Sunday, it is right to be grateful for the courage and service for those who have fought and are fighting for that peace in our world. And we honor them best by looking for this lasting 360-degree peace that will come when Jesus brings. As we finish, how do we look for that peace? Two ways from our psalm. First, pray for this 360-degree peace and nothing else. I don't know about you, but it is overwhelming to see images of war, overwhelming and inescapable. What do you do when you see those images and they take your breath away? Surely you cry out, God, stop it. And that is a good prayer. But go further than that. Don't just pray for the fighting to stop. Look at Psalm 147. Pray for the flourishing to start, for the kind of peace which isn't just weapons put down, but God getting to work to restore, secure, and satisfy. Because our world does not just need ceasefires. It needs him to come and bring the kind of peace his word tells us about. Pray for this 360-degree peace and nothing less. Second, put your hope in God and nowhere else. Verse 10 must have been a challenge to Israel. They must have been constantly tempted back then to rely on whatever empire could keep them strong, whoever had the firepower in battle. But verse 11 calls them away from that. Not to put their hope in those things, but instead, verse 11, the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. This is a basic pattern of the Christian life. Don't trust your ability to achieve for yourself what can only be received from him. That is true globally. We shouldn't ultimately put our hope in Western military might. But it's also true in everyday life. Our ability to win arguments, to put others down, to get our way, it will not bring you lasting peace. Not peace within, and not peace with others, and not peace with him. Instead, 
Hear verse 11. Put your hope in his unfailing love. The unfailing love of God, which is on display and on offer in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and can be ours today. Let me pray that we would put our hope in him now.